this is the fiction nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm John Freeman, author of The Park. That was very good. I think you missed a preposition in there. I'm not going to give you 100% grade on that, John. I'm an editor, man. I'm going to edit on the fly. (laughs) I think we should have every guest do that. And they can also write the episode scripts and read all the books and do the transcription. Oh, I'm willing to do that. Wait, wait a second. That'd be doing your job. We've, we almost have convinced John to uh, work with us on the podcast. Sugi, that was a nice try. I don't think that's going to work. I think he, does he have enough projects though? I'm not sure if he does. I think he should add to his portfolio. It would not be surprising if he also worked on a podcast, but somehow I am one of the co-hosts of this podcast and sadly John is not. Um, I am Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I am Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And John Freeman, our buddy, is one of the most talented, hardworking, and up until COVID-19, peripatetic writers in the United States or maybe the world. He is the editor of Freeman's A Literary Annual of New Writing and multiple anthologies, including Tales of Two Planets, Stories of Climate Change and Inequality in a Divided World. Maps, his debut collection of poems, was published in 2017. His work has been translated into more than 20 languages and has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and The New York Times. And he's here to talk to us about that new anthology and his new collection of poems, The Park. John, welcome to the show. It's really nice to be back. It is so good to see you, even distantly. Do you remember me editing your last appearance on the show as we drove down to Wichita on I-35 to do an event with Sarah Smarsh at... Watermark books. Yeah, I was going to say, I think your uh, your studio conditions have improved vastly. <laughs> no longer in your car. <laughs> we also, I remember I was like, does this sound tin? And you were like, yeah, it does, but it's okay. It's all right. <laughs> I didn't know how to fix it. Uh, we figured out a thing called a DSer now that helps quite a bit with the sound. There's really nothing like road editing with Whitney. Um, it strikes me that the interstate and the road in general, not my favorite place for editing, is a particularly American kind of public space. And maybe in the age of COVID, one of the few left. But your book thinks, thinks about public space in terms of a very different location, the Luxembourg Gardens in Paris. So why did you choose that public space and not say I-35 between Kansas City and Wichita? Well, the honest and direct answer there is that I no longer have a driver's license. <laughs> so, so, um, so I could do that in a taxi, perhaps, um, or in my dad's car. Uh, but he lives in Sacramento, and I mostly take public transportation. Um, and so, for me, uh, public space is the sidewalk, is the street, uh, our parks, uh, where I spend a lot of my time. And for part of the year, I live um, and teach in Paris. And uh, in 2016, um, after this. Uh, elections started really ramping up. I, I feel like the, the, the discourse about what public space is and who's allowed to be there um, took a very violent notch upward in terms of the terms of uh, who can be left out and why. Uh, and a park to me became a refuge from that kind of conversation. And so I would go into Luxembourg Gardens in January when I was staying there and and June and July and August. And I would see people agreeing to get along, to not bother each other. I would see people of all sort of ages and races uh, sitting near one another, doing the things you do sometimes in private, like kissing and eating a meal or sometimes reading a book. But I also saw people hiding in the park. I saw people uh, kicked out of the park. And so just as quickly as I tried to make the park a utopia, it reasserted that all the things that I wanted to correct in our public life or wished were different um, were inside the park too. And so it became a kind of fascinating study for me of the ways that our civilizations work, that they have this tension between inclusion and exclusion between um, mendacity and generosity. I was thinking a lot about public space. and In fact, the other night I was watching uh, Fellini's film Eight and a Half. I don't know if you're familiar with that with that movie. It's about a movie about a filmmaker. It's set in in Italy, but of course, you know, Italy had this terrible uh, coronavirus outbreak, and so the movie read 
totally differently to me. There's a scene very early on where where the the main character Guido is, is asked to go take a holy water cure, and he like is everyone's lined up in this like plaza, you know, close together. And I was like, oh my god, I can't even imagine that now. And the, it was so strange, like. And, and I wonder, you know, like, since you wrote this book, do you go to public parks? Do they feel different? You know, like, what's that been like in the age of COVID-19? I do, actually. I, I, uh, I have been running on the west side of Manhattan, um, down from where I am in Chelsea to the tip of the island and back. But it's actually become too crowded. So I now run inside a park that's in a housing development not far from me, um, for affordable housing which is a wonderful development because it means that you can walk from 28th street to 23rd without walking on an Avenue. Um, and the, the housing development is also full of trees and benches. And so you see walking through there, all sorts of families. And so uh, people tend to be very cautious and respectful. They're not zipping by you an inch from your face. There's no people, there, no one's on a bicycle. And I, I also had one of those, I love New York moments because, um, you know, they're teenagers, they're, you know, young men in their 20s throwing a football, there are kids, there are adults who are doing Zoom classes uh, with their yoga instructor, there are retired people, um, there are postal workers on their lunch break. And it's like the whole uh, human parade and everyone um, respects each other's privacy. Well, I mean, one of, one of the things that has turned out to be interesting about the pandemic is that open public space is incredibly important because that's one of the safest places you can be um, in, other than alone inside your house. Uh, and so that, that changed. I mean, Kansas City doesn't have enough parks, in my view, and our parks are crowded. And you suddenly think, oh, my God, we need more space. I wrote a post the other day about criticizing the private golf courses and asking them, like, hey, why that. don't you guys... <laughs> Boy, everybody got mad about that. But I mean, it's so much dead space. They could be helping people. And we're, you know, that, that, that's the difference between public space and private space. Well, we're creatures of sense, you know, and the last uh, two months or so, we've been asked to, to live without the sense of touch. When you go into public space, that sense is activated. And that doesn't mean you're running around and patting people on the back and hugging strangers. It, the city touches you, you know, wind blows across your face. You know, you run underneath a tree and there's a, a sense of shade and your skin gets cooler. And all those um, feelings, I think, activate a, a creatureliness within us, which I have no data on this, but I feel like makes us a tiny bit um, kinder to each other. And I feel like we need that sense of touch in order to um, exist in, in a kind of larger theoretical um, space such as a city or a state or a nation, if we're ever going to be addressed as members of those theoretical states. When I think about what's going on in here in Minneapolis, I hear a lot of my, I've been outside, I think a lot less than a lot of other people. And my friends who have gone outside have talked about inadequate social distancing here. We have a ton of green space and a ton of parks. And um, also the city of Minneapolis actually shut down a major parkway alongside a lake because they thought there wasn't enough public space and that people were inadequately distancing. So they just made it so people can't even drive there so that there's more space for pedestrians, which is great. Um, and then this morning I was looking at Instagram, my friend Jennifer Lee, um, this is Jenny Ailey, who used to be a reporter for the New York Times posted, um, I'm trying to remember which park this wasn't in, in New York, John, maybe you would actually know, I feel like it might've been Brooklyn. It was a park where there were little circles that were kind of parking spaces for people within a park so that they would socially distance. And I, this made a lot of sense to me because I was kind of like, you know, I think, you know, if I, like, for example, like, if I saw Whitney, like, I haven't seen Whitney in, like, months. And so, like, m like the muscle memory is like, oh, it's my friend. I'm going to hug him. And, like, I just don't have the practice. And so these, it's interesting to see government coming into these public spaces and making marks for us to stand on, almost like we're about to be in a play together, like a grand play in public space. Um, do you know the park that I'm talking about? I don't know which one you're speaking of, but I've, I've seen those things. They have markers throughout uh, Central Park, which, which it's, it usually says, this is six feet. And it looks a lot bigger when you see it. And you think, oh, God, I, I don't think a lot of people are observing this. And actually, I've found that Central Park is, of the parks I can go to in Manhattan, it's the worst. You know, all those bicyclists with $9,000 carbon fiber bikes, you know, who are training as if they're in the Peloton for Tour de France. 
go zipping by, you know, six inches from you and you think you have a whole double sized roadway that you're on, you know, doing this. And yeah. I think one of the um, metaphorical civic actions that takes place in parks is that you, you have to engage in kind of a give and take and a, especially now a, a sense of protection against yourself towards another person. You know, I've had the virus and I am theoretically immune, but I also know that people don't know I've had the virus. And so running close to them um, is gonna make them upset. So don't do that is, is a kind of normal thing. And right now it seems like so much of the, the ethical algebra we have to do in our heads to, to live in this moment means thinking about someone else who might be in front of us, but may not be. They might, they might be a theor theoretical person. So before COVID, the biggest crisis was the, in some ways the, the climate crisis. And what was being done in Minneapolis, say driving a car or using resources had an outsized effect on what was happening say in Burundi or, or in Bangladesh. And if we cannot do that sort of mental theoretical mathematics of sharing resources and space, we're really kind of doomed. And so COVID to me feels like this um, near form uh, challenge in that regard where you can see the people who you might possibly give the virus to um, or make worried. And uh, how, how do you accommodate for the differences in your fates or the fact that you might be contagious and, or you might be immune and they might not know you. Um, and so those things to me are really activated by being in public space now. So in the collection, you have a couple of poems that are specifically about the way that public space is created, you know, taking us back to what you were saying about Paris. Um, I wonder if you can read Unfinished for us. Oh, yeah. I found that fascinating because I went into this park, like all parks, um, ignorant. You know, I just sort of thought, oh, trees, pebbled lawn, you know, a fountain. Uh, and then I realized, uh, you know, there was a lot of history there that the park was several hundred years old that was built by a woman who married into the royal family in, in France because of her money and um, had to leave, you know, because her husband had been killed and who had built this park as a, out of nostalgia for the, the pithy palace where she grew up in Florence. And that basically we were living in a kind of denatured um, dream home of a woman who, you know, did her best to write her own destiny in her time. Um, and so I, I tried to grab some of those details and put them into this poem, which takes a bit of poetic liberty, but it's, it's basically true. And it's called Unfinished. And it's about Mary de' Medici. She never saw it completed, did not glimpse the many varieties of tortoises that lounged in a pond near the North Gate, never peered into its vast fish pool never lowered her voice upon stepping into the metal room, her son's decoration shimmering in its ambition. She, being a woman, had to move in while the making was still being made, 1625, interiors, sawdust and silk, mornings padding across cold marble floors past footmen clicking their heels together, the arc of her life there for all to see in 24 Rubenses, girlhood, motherhood, widowhood, how they resented her, the French, but needed her money. She would have to commission her own story. She just needed more time. But time knows when it is being chased. The cardinals and ministers did not even hide the whetstone. They would eat her. Sailing to the Spanish Netherlands, banished to Belgium, did she know that she'd never see her beloved park again? Or did it occur to her, finally, she could never replace time with more time? Even a third of a century building was not enough to return her childhood for a moment. So she gave her park to her son, the second son, in the full throes of his dukedom, an expert in acquisition. He'd never understand the only things that matter are irreplaceable. Then the palace began to tumble through the ages, each exchange erasing what it was meant to replace, developers nibbling at its margins, Napoleon ripping up her fountain, urban planners stuffing its walks with statuaries, 
a hundred thousand kisses exchanged in its shadows every spring. Even the Nazis in 1940 passed through, and the Luftwaffe said, this will do. It's sleeting today, winter. The park glistens in its blanket of cold. By noon, the snow will be gone, an easy embrace to refuse. Thank you very much. I mean, Marie de Medici, you know, is a, is a bit of a tragic figure in that poem, but she's not exactly, you know, poor. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I was thinking a lot when I read that poem and in other places in, in, your, in the collection about this connection between public space and wealth. Um, and why are so many of our public spaces created by the wealthy? Is it just because that's who has the land? Is, there, is that the only way it can be done? Yeah, I have a poem in my first collection about Wimbledon. Um, the common there was owned by royal families and then sort of landed wealthy families. And it was opened up to the, the plebes, you know, as the city changed and expanded and uh, all the grand stately homes nearby needed um, cobblers and cooks and tailors and people to attend to the needs of a wealthy household. And those needs built the roadways, which invited people to move closer, which in, 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 in turn created the need for space. And so people gave up some of their, their own private space. You know, the queen in England owns much of the land of the green belt. And so the, the citizens of, or, or anyone passing through Britain is allowed to go and visit, you know, Richmond Park, but the queen technically owns it, I think. Um, and such is the case all over the world. And France is interesting, especially Paris, because um, Napoleon at one point told all the dukes and landowners in Paris, like, you got to open your parks. And suddenly, in a very short period of time, uh, these giant areas of urban green were opened to the rest of the world. Well, isn't that the, isn't that easement? Isn't that what that's, that poem is about? That's okay. what that poem is about. Yeah. And, you know, Kipling and others came to Paris in this time and were marveling at the fact that, you know, everyday people could sit in a park that was really designed for the extreme 1% of 1% and take their leisure. And, you know, in, in some ways, a, a nation, especially a capitalist nation like the one we live in, has metaphorical anodynes to this. Right now, I think in our country, we're in one of those peak moments of consolidation of resources and wealth. And so I, I decided in this moment to write about a park because it, it seems to me that it's about time we, we created some more parks, if not um, actual, then, then metaphorical. Um, and Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, whose wealth has gone up by 24 billion in the last two months, they can afford to create public space where people who aren't their customers, who are just simply citizens of, or residents of a place uh, can go and take a load off. In a different vein, maybe as a counterpoint to the idea that parks are created by the wealthy, you also write a lot in this collection about the ways that animals think about space as compared to people. This is something that we've been interested in. Um, we've talked to a, a few different guests about this, and I, I think it's fascinating. And your opening poem does this. Could you read that poem for us? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in the last couple of years, I've read some books that have kind of centered nature. You know, Richard Powers' novel, obviously, is one of them. Um, but there are other ones. Uh, and I found it very strange spending a lot of time in this park thinking, the park doesn't know I'm here. You know, the park has no conception of me as a human or as a citizen or as an American or as anything. You know, it's, they're just a bunch of forms of, uh, of natural life around me going about their days. You know, just reminding me that we're kind of in the species realm, that humans are, well, we're like the 1% of the 1%, you know, and what we claim dominion over. And so this is called the sacrifice. The difference between animals and us, the main one is, they don't need to know it's a park. The coyote lopes through just the same, looking for food. We stop in mourning, sensing everything we've lost. We call that ceremony a park. <laughs> And that's not the only time that the freedom of animals comes up. In uh, the poem Open All Night, you write, 
When there is no hawk falling like a blade, no wolf loping into view, no marmot nosing the cracks in what we made of its pavement, we are lonely and ashamed. So it seems like you think of you have in the, in the space actually like we require the animals to be there in a certain way. Yeah, I've always read uh, the story about the Garden of Eden as, uh, in a different way than I think maybe some uh, literalists read it, and that uh, it's not um, knowledge that creates shame. Um, to me, it, it's uh, the way that knowledge is used to create a separation between us and the other forms of life that are share this planet with us. Oh, that's funny, because that was explained to me as like, please don't have sex with people. That was that was the way it was explained to me. Yeah, I grew up Protestant, too, and I, I had that period. And then I thought, you know, this is not useful. It's always interesting to be the person on this podcast who read the Bible mostly in hotels. Um, <laughs> in another place, you write, a park's purpose is to temper the machine in us, which is a really interesting idea. I wondered how that idea might be in tension with the other common denizen of the park, which is transient folks, the homeless. Um you know, is it good for public spaces like parks to, quote, temper the machine in us if part of that tempering means that there are parts of humanity that it's easier for us to ignore or unsee? I think those are really troubling dynamics, and I'm glad you asked me about them because I believe that parks can be a very good influence on our lives, but you're not only if they become decoration or Instagrammable moments of sort of nature as a, as a form of um, lifestyle meditation, you know, and I, one of the things a, a park resists, I think, fundamentally, is the notion that everything is usable or fungible. But in reality, we live in a world in which time is commodified, our labor has been commodified to a level that it's almost abstract. So a transient or a person without a home, a person without a job, is triply um, expelled from the notions of society. Whereas many of the people who don't feel uncomfortable in a park or who feel entitled to be there, have busy jobs, which have taken up most of their time and are carrying probably in their pocket a sort of leash to their daily work as a reminder that they should be continuing to be a functionary of whatever business world that they're in. And so a park can be, I think, an enlarging um, wedge in that moment and that it can bring together people who are working hard, possibly, or just constantly with people who have no work um, to make us realize that we do share one fundamental thing, which is that no, no one should be entirely defined by their uh, ability to be a functional aspect of a labor-driven society, which is then pushing that, that value of labor up into the hands of a few. The gainfully employed share that in common with people who are not employed. Um, but the, the, there are a few places, I think, in a in a city where that can be as obvious as say a park. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing that I've noticed recently up until this Friday actually, which is we're recording this on a Saturday. So yesterday was the first day that all businesses sort of started to open up in restaurants and stuff in Kansas City. Up until then, you know, the city was a little bit like a park uh, and there's more wildlife. You see rabbits and more birds. Uh, but also I noticed, and I've mentioned this on other podcasts, like the homeless were a lot more visible. They were a lot more seeable. Mm -hmm. And I noticed how much I didn't see them when they were around other working people, when other people were there to take up my vision because it was easier to ignore. One of the most difficult aspects about sharing public space with people who don't have a home is trying to figure out what your um, responsibility to them is. Uh, how do you share a space with people whose resources are so vastly less than yours uh, if you're a middle-class worker. One of the things I dislike the most about living in New York City is the fundamental idea that you don't give and you don't look because once you start seeing and engaging, the scale of the need is so great because every night there's 70,000 homeless people of which about 25 to 30,000 are children is monstrous. You know, one reason why I think uh, parks can be democratically important is be it is a place where people without homes can often go and you can see them and you can speak to people. One of the most difficult moments for me in Kansas City, a lot of people panhandle, for lack of a better term, right at 
the exit to highways or entrance to highways or at stop, certain stoplights, right? And you know that feeling in Kansas City. You pull up, you're sitting there, and you're the first car in line, and that person is right there on the median with their sign. And I don't look at them unless I'm going to give them money, right? And, and, and then the other day, a guy had... A, a guy had this amazing thing. He had he'd made a punching bag that had Trump's face on it. And it was like, punch Trump, $1. And I was like, yes, I'm going to pay for that. I'm going to give this guy a 20. You know? And then I realized, like, I don't want to touch him. I don't want to have him come by the window. You know, I mean, I'm just being honest about that. Like that was suddenly a complicated thing because of the virus, right? And so people are also thinking about the homeless as a, as a population that's very much at risk from this. The park that I'm describing in this book is very heavily patrolled. Since Macron has become head of state, there's been a, a lot more clearing of the park of, of people who are not living there, but are probably vagrants, uh, which is peculiar because I, I have a poem in here in which I describe running around the outside of the park uh, and looking at a photography exhibit about Syrian migrants. While inside the park, there are actual migrants. And I think, uh, we live in a society where uh, our reactions and interactions with truly troubling, if not monstrous dynamics are controlled by giving us things to look at and to see, to exercise our empathic reactions to. And so empathy can become a kind of closed loop, if you will. And that closed loop is one of the most devastating things to any society, which is all of our societies, which needs a great deal of progress about justice, about equality, about fair and open elections, anything. Uh, and so when it comes to you know, homeless people in a park, your reaction, I think, is very honest, Whitney, because there is no moment there that you can extract and consume. You are simply face to face with another person who either uh, is trying not to be seen or needs to be seen because they need something from you. There's no right or wrong answer to a lot of these questions. So I tried to create a space in this book where at least some of the problems or the dynamics could exist in the ways that they exist in public space. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about this and to think about, um, you know, I grew up in primarily white spaces. I grew up in suburban Maryland and I remember going to college and, in, you know, I remember sort of the first time I was, you know, on the quad or whatever, and I crossed the path of another person of color, right? And then there's like the nod. And I was like, oh my God, there's a nod. That's so exciting. I was so excited, right? Because there was like this acknowledgement of another person that's like not transactional. And I think it was like probably the first time I'd experienced that, which I feel like is really something that I learned from black communities. And I feel like that's also a way in which, right? I mean, homeless communities are also disproportionately people of color, and I feel like the ways in which I've learned to interact with people in a more humane way have largely been from like left activists of color. And when I think also about parks, I just want to mention like many years ago, I was at McDowell with an artist named Bettina Yohe, who is um, German and she uh, lives in New York or did live in New York. And she was doing this map of um, Brooklyn parks that had been converted from private property to public use through eminent domain. It was so interesting also to see who those spaces had been taken from. Right. And so like also the, the population that we're talking about, like that space, of course, belongs to them. And it also just like really, I mean, historically, it belongs to them. Um, and I mean, the way that that property was was taken and the way that we occupy it now is, um, yeah, so problematic, um, even as it gives us the sensation of, of enormous freedom. Yeah, I think if a park exists to allow the people who have the most freedom already in society to have even more freedom to move around and it's really not serving its function. And so the parks I'm drawn to, like the one I mentioned on 28th street between 9th and 10th, they feel like democratic spaces, which were created out of uh, a shared public need and a um, willingness to give up that land. Uh, when a park develops out of gentrification uh, or any kind of forward movement in which people are priced out of homes in order for a stretch of land to be then made inaccessible to them. Um, that is also a, a, one of the downsides to a park. And in some ways you can look at the entire United States as a large scale metaphor for that, um, in which lands 
typically, you know, lived on, occupied by, um, and in some cases owned by many, many people were taken from them in order to be converted for, um, you know, public use of people with a lot more freedom. It's heartbreaking, you know, that that's part of our country's history, but it is. So we want you to read a poem, one last poem that's not about parks, but is excellent nonetheless and has an amazing word in it. And it made us think about our current president and it will help us transition, I think, to talking about the anthology. Could you read Wait for us? Oh yeah, Wait. What if each time you caused pain, a small round stone were put in your pocket, pebbles for inducing self-doubt, osmium for death. When you heard someone approach their pockets noisy, you'd know just as dogs do to keep distance. Some men would pull wagons behind them, their pants disfigured. They'd be shamed from sidewalks, delayed at customs. They would, could never lie flat on beds. They'd have to stand, feeling the weight of what they'd done. I don't, I, osmium is not a word that I have encountered before. This is an extremely heavy element. Um, all right, so all of us pulling our wagons of extremely heavy elements, uh, wagons of osmium could easily appear in the two previous Tales of Volumes that you've edited, Tales of Two Cities, which details income inequality in New York City, and then Tales of Two Americas, which I was uh, lucky enough to have an, an essay in, um, uh, which examines income inequality on the national level. Your newest book, Tales of Two Planets, looks at global income inequality in the context of the climate crisis. So why the climate crisis? And why now? And what are you going to do next? Tale of, tales of Two Universes, Tales of Two Solar Systems? You're getting bigger and bigger. No, I, um, traveling around with you, actually, in some cases, one of the things I noticed in talking about Tales of Two uh, Americas was how much um, the climate crisis was a big part of what was driving inequality here. You know, that many people that were coming into the United States from South America and Central America were leaving a dry corridor where they could no longer farm. Uh, and they were coming to the United States for economic possibility. And similarly, there were zones in Louisiana and Florida where homes that people had built and lived in were no longer sellable um, because of the changing and rising sea tides. You know, the United States is actually extremely well off when, so far when it comes to what's happening as a result of the, of the climate crisis. Um, that's not been the case for Bangladesh, for example. We need to, I think, start thinking as a global collective in order to talk about some of these issues because if everything is addressed as a, a question of how does this affect me, that is essentially believing or agreeing to believe that the lottery of birth is a fiat of fate. You know, that if you're born in Calcutta versus Cleveland, if you're born in a white body versus a brown body, um, that these things should be absolutely determinant. Um, and if anything, a society gets together to share risk and wealth and to hopefully try to, to make things a little bit fairer. Uh, otherwise, Hello. why not just live in a castle? And with perfect timing. Look who's here, speaking of, right on time. That couldn't have been timed better. So Whitney, I wonder, do you know, are you teaching remotely in the fall? Well, I mean, I did teach remotely this spring, and we're sort of up for debate whether I'm going to be teaching face-to-face -face or, or more via Zoom in the fall. Yeah, that's true over here, too. And I think a lot of people are getting really interested in what kinds of education they can get online. And so today we want to tell our listeners a little bit about the University of Colorado's Master of Arts in Journalism Entrepreneurship, which is an online professional degree program that prepares you to be a successful journalism professional in today's rapidly and we mean rapidly evolving media <laughs> landscape. Boy, howdy, the round the rapidly. Um, yeah. You know, but I mean, I think it's great that it's an online program because I, I, I literally think that, I, I don't think we're going to be teaching face-to-face -face in, 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 in August. And if you're in this program, it doesn't matter. I mean, you, you can do it from anywhere. Um, it can be completed in, the program can be in, completed in, in as little as a year. And it's designed for students with a range of professional experience. Um, so the program gives you the building blocks to launch and advance your journalistic career. 
It seems like there's no better time to do that than at the moment when journalism is so, so important. And the University of Colorado uh, invites you to learn more at ce.colorado.edu slash tell the story to invent your future in journalism today. That's ce.colorado.edu slash tell the story. So we must do formal introductions. We are lucky to have two old friends with us today. Um, And Tamima Anam, who is also one of the writers in uh, the Climate Anthology, is joining us today to talk about her work. And she was born in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and she was selected as a Granta Best of Young British Novelist 2013. Her first novel, A Golden Age, was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award and the Costa First Novel Award, was the winner of the Commonwealth Writers' Prize for Best First Book. Her second novel, The Good Muslim, was shortlisted for the DSC Prize for South Asian Literature and also longlisted for the Man Asian Literary Prize. Her latest novel, The Bones of Grace, was published in 2016. Her columns have also regularly appeared in the New York Times and The Guardian, and she lives in London. Tamima, welcome to the show. Hi, Suki. It's so great to have you here. Um, A little context for our listeners, Tamima and I went on book tour a bunch together in 2008, which was huge fun. Um, and we're in at least three countries together. That was and really fun. I miss it. And it feels like a completely different world. It really, it seems like it. Um, I guess it's, you know, now we're reunited the fourth way via Zoom. Um, so it's really wonderful to see your face. Um, we've just been talking about John's poetry collection and also the anthology. And I wonder if you could start us off by reading your piece from it. I would be very happy to. It's a very short story essay um, basically about how embarrassed I was as a kid how embarrassed I was to come from Bangladesh Um, and yeah so that was my childhood Um, it's called the unfortunate place once upon a time there was a girl from a terrible country the country was battered by the worst combination of natural and human-made disasters floods cyclones famines war The country was small and the people were poor. Every bad thing that could happen to a place would happen to that country. When she was seven, she and her parents left the terrible country and moved to New York City. Her parents enrolled her in the UN school, which was called Eunice. At Eunice, the students were invited to take pride in where they came from. What are you most proud of? Her teacher asked. The Australian boy said kangaroos. The Kenyan boy said Kip Kano, the marathon runner who had won Olympic gold in Mexico and Munich. When it was the girl's turn, she had difficulty coming up with anything. Everyone still remembered that Henry Kissinger had once called her country a basket case, and that the image on the record of a famous charity concert for her country was of a starving child. Longest beach in the world? She offered weakly, pointing to a photo of a scruffy stretch of gray-brown sand. Sometimes other children would ask her whether they had roads in her country and what she did when floods and cyclones arrived. She had herself not witnessed either of these catastrophes as her grandparents' house was on the edge of a lake that swelled in the monsoon and dried up in winter as it always had. When the girl grew up, she attempted to make peace with this terrible country. It's not so bad, she told herself. It's maybe on the scale of things somewhat unlucky. But people often asked her the same questions about the floods and the cyclones. Then the world realized that something awful was about to happen to the entire planet. It was called, in turn, climate change, climate crisis, and then climate catastrophe. To her chagrin, the girl realized that her country happened to be unfortunate in this regard as well. Because it was located on the edge of the sea and made up of low-lying delta, when the sea rose, which in it which it inevitably would, it would eat her country first. On the front lines of climate change, they called it now, because the world was different and basket case would have sounded too cruel. As time went on, however, the girl came to realize that because of all the terrible things, her people had the ability to see into the future. In the terrible country, climate catastrophe had already happened. All the storms that would batter the rest of the world had already appeared on her coastline. The floods and the droughts and the cyclones, they were used to those. They had built shelters and learned to irrigate lands in unusual ways. They were people who were used to living with uncertainty, with a kind of expectation of disaster that the rest of the world would eventually have to adapt to. 
In a world divided between those who knew and were therefore prepared for what was about to happen and those who did not, her country was finally, possibly, a little bit lucky. One day at her son's school gates, a parent introduces her father. The father is a publisher, and the parent thinks, since the girl, now a woman, is a writer, they might have something to say to one another. Bangladesh, the man announces. I call that the unfortunate place. She smiles. But we know things that you will have to learn the hard way, she thinks. If she could speed back in time, she would have her younger self say to that class, resilience, in the face of all that is terrible, resilience. Well, thank you very much. You've been writing about climate change for more than a decade now and really spotlighting Bangladesh's unique position. How has your thinking and writing changed over time? I mean, that, that story is in some ways about how your, your thinking and writing about this issue has changed over time. And, and how, what was the moment that you conceived of that piece itself? I mean, I had a lot of trouble, as John will attest to. He kind of was trying to persuade me to write something. I kept saying, no, I don't have anything intelligent to say. The first time I ever wrote anything about climate change was um, a very small piece in the New York Times. And it was more than 10 years ago. And the conversation has changed significantly since then. It used to be something that only environmentalists and activists really talked about as something that was definitely going to happen. In Bangladesh, people talk about it as something that, you know, there's a mass amount of migration from the coastal areas to the city. Every year, millions of people migrate because their land is literally disappearing. So it, it hasn't felt for a long time that it's a possible future. It has felt like it's a real present. Um, so it's just kind of bringing those two narratives together, one of a place where it has already happened and another where people have slowly come around to the idea that this is an inevitability and it's not something that's going to happen in several generations. It's something that's going to happen in our lifetimes. When I hear that story, I was, of course, thinking of uh, my own quote unquote unfortunate place uh, and the ways in which so much of what you describe feels also somewhat Sri Lankan. Um, and like Bangladesh, right, these places are not considered part of the global north. And in your story, you challenge the idea that the global north is adequately prepared to tackle the climate crisis um, when compared to other countries. So I'm. how did you come to think of Bangladesh as a place of resilience like how did you get beyond that shame to sort of see the resource the resourcefulness that's there because I think I also see this um in Sri Lankan communities where like as you say like this isn't this isn't a surprise um how did you kind of get around your own your own viewpoint there I mean I think the reality is that if the climate crisis unfolds in the way that all the scientists are telling us is going to unfold no amount of resilience is going to help the people in places like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. That's just a hard kind of scientific reality. Having said that, I think, um, you know, Bangladesh has been for many years a kind of laboratory for certain kinds of innovation. If you think about microcredit or if you think about the first treatment for cholera, it happened in Bangladesh and it's because it happened so kind of like, you know, uh, in the most kind of extreme way there that other countries couldn't help but learn from it. So innovations came out of desperation. And I think there are certain kinds of innovations in like agriculture or disaster preparedness or whatever that we can learn from. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know what all of those things are, but I was trying to bring back, I was trying to kind of pull back um, from the story of the unfortunate a story of resilience. And, and, and I feel a little bit conflicted about it because I think ultimately we have to accept that there are certain realities that cannot be ignored. And that is not to say that, oh, don't worry, the people of Bangladesh, you know, they're used to like really shitty things happening to them. So they'll be fine. <laughs> Let's not worry about them. Um, on the other hand, you know, I think it's not just a simple story of um, victims and um non-victims. John, I'm curious for your thoughts about this because, you know, 
countries in the global south have already seen the scars of the climate crisis. When you were curating the anthology and thinking about, you know, the, the writers in the anthology are presented within the frame of the countries that they're from. How did you think about uh, you, how you wanted to frame the anthology and which authors and nations really needed to be included there? Um, that's a good question, you know, because uh, Tamima, you've moved around in several nations um, and uh, several other contributors. Suleiman Adonia, you know, comes from Eritrea and four other nations. And as his, in his piece, he's writing about how he came to teach a, a, a workshop in um, helping refugees tell their stories and what that means when your body has physically fled for its own safety um, to another space, your body becomes a kind of story in situ in a way. Um, and so in putting this together, I didn't want um, any kind of nationality to be a baseline unit for selfhood, um, because I think that is one of the problems uh, that is continuously gumming up the works of having any kind of enlarging discussion about how to live in a world where people are going to migrate for reasons uh, of economic need, uh, for political safety, for physical or uh, safety to escape gender persecution, all kinds of things. And as Tamima mentioned, you know, 50 to 200,000 people a year are leaving Bangladesh as well and going elsewhere. Um, and, you know, what, what, what kind of world is that um, where we think people cannot be accepted um, if they're fleeing, actually just for, for life and limb. And so I wanted there to be pieces that basically um, spoke from the perspective of living in a place, but not necessarily agreeing with or underwriting the positions of that, those places' governments. And I think one of the peculiar and probably frustrating things right now for people who have grown up outside the United States is to watch many people in the United States discover for the first time what it feels like to have their government be a hostile force to them. And that has been the case for a long period of time for many people within the United States. But I think there is also this um, explosion of frustration that people feel no connection to the policies and um, statements of the Trump administration. And that has been the case for many people all over the world and many other governments, governments that the U.S. has been involved in, governments that the U.S. has propped up, governments that the U.S. has enabled to not do things to fight against what has been known for a long time is coming when it comes to the climate. Um, and that's all over the globe. And so I think this anthology needed to be something where people could take on and take and put off their national identities but I did want it to be on each piece so that there was at least some sense that this, where someone was calling from a little bit. One of the pieces that I liked, along with Tamimus, is uh, the, the piece, The Funniest Shit You Ever Heard, which is about infrastructure. That's, not, that's also part of climate change, talking about sewers and how they're built and how they work. And, you know, it's a joke of the Trump administration that there's infrastructure week is every week and they never actually do anything about infrastructure. And when I read that piece, um, I wrote a piece for the Kansas City Star when I was like in 1991, just a kid, you know, about our crumbling sewers system, you know, and we still have the same. I mean, I was writing about, you know, p clay pipes that have been put in in the 1800s that were carrying water, you know, under the Missouri River and supplying our drinking water. I mean, some of that's happening in America too. We need to find ways to talk about this publicly. And one of the reasons why I asked Tamima to write, even though she was busy and didn't have ideas right away, um, Tamima's been writing about climate change in newspapers since 2007, as far as I can tell. Um, so long ago that she was actually fighting some of the disinformation that was being pumped out by uh, quasi-governmental think tanks, by members of parliament, by MPs, by senators. That kind of quasi-corruption is essentially often used to, to go against the public interest, you know, to basically say, we're not going to invest in green policies. This has been the, true the world over, and I, a lot of the writers I picked in this book 
from Lena Manzur, whose piece you just mentioned, um, who's writing about you know the lack of infrastructure in in Lebanon and the way that, in spite of that, there are still development projects happening in places where there absolutely should not be new buildings. To Tamima's piece, to the, you know pieces by the uh, Juan Miguel Alvarez, the Colombian reporter, who's describing how uh, the government is not doing much about landslides in Colombia because. Uh, it's got its hands full. There, we have to figure out a way that writers can speak directly to uh, some of the issues we're confronting. It's not enough to have, you know, apocalypse parables and fantasies. Um, there has to be some discussion that is happening by the characters in front of us on the page that is that is directly related to what's happening. So Tamima, in your, in your piece, you talk about uh, shifting language from climate change to climate crisis and then climate catastrophe. Uh, the Guardian has changed their style guide. What other kind of changes in language are taking place in literary or journalistic writing about climate change? And in what ways is our vocabulary still limited? I mean, I think we're just moving from the imagined to the sort of present. It used to be that you just couldn't imagine this thing that was going to happen somewhere else in some distant point in the future. And you really, in a way, you can't blame people because it was like a phantom. It was like, oh, in, you know, 200 years, um, something is, it's going to be like two degrees warmer. It's really like, well, two degrees warmer, what does that really mean? And I think we're just, it's in the news, you know, it's not like fortune telling anymore. Um, even though the scientists were always saying it was documentary and they were saying that the evidence was there and they've been, you know, we, we see the kind of the, the sort of panicked cries of climate scientists probably from the 80s to, you know, and there were so many moments in time when we could have stopped the train. It's, it's no longer something that may happen at some point in the future. And we always imagine the future is much more technologically advanced than it actually is. If you if you look at all the movies that, you know, imagined this time, it was like flying cars and going to Mars, right? So we just thought, well, in, you know, in a hundred years, we'll figure out a way to freeze the ice caps again. So it'll all be fine. Let's trust our descendants to sort of, you know, figure out some kind of way out of this. Um, and now it's just, I think it's completely shifted because we, it is manifest in our lives today. It has accelerated so quickly, so much faster than anyone had imagined or predicted. It's sort of the language, the language of the present rather than the language of the future. I notice in a lot of fiction that so many things that are aspects of our daily life, whether you live in a city or in a rural area, are kind of edited out because they're inconvenient to fiction. You know, and in the previous segment, we were talking about, you know, homelessness and why in so many novels set in urban areas, does no one ever encounter or step over someone who's sleeping on a street? Because then suddenly the, the, the fiction, the fantasy of the world crumbles. And it's the same with technology. It's the same with work. Very few people work in novels. Um, and it's certainly been the, the case with the climate crisis. And I really admire Tamima's work and the trilogy that she completed in you know, uh, she's often talked about this publicly as something that was owed to her country. And, you know, one of the flip sides to that notion being accepted is, uh, is the notion that writers who don't come from a small country or quote unquote developing country do not owe anything, that they have uh, carte blanche, you know. Um, and as a result, you know, there, there needs to be a kind of, I think, trilogy of the unraveling of American public contract of the idea of a collective that could, you know, that could start in the Nixon years, it could progress to the Bush years and end in the Trump years. And the environment is absolutely a part of that. And, and because of the rather convoluted and, and we all know the reasons why slightly fucked up, you know, dynamics that mean that a, a writer like Tamima feels that book is owed and a writer, say, from Kansas City who's white doesn't feel that book is owed. Um, what it means is that we don't, we have a paucity of writing about climate within a country that has an outsized footprint on what can be done possibly about policy in the climate crisis. 
And so all the effort ends up falling on people that are often carrying all the weight in so many other discussions, people from native communities, uh, women of color. Uh, and as a result, the, the, you know, we are find ourselves at, in 2020 when cl the climate crisis is out of control with, with not very much writing in front of us um, dealing with the scale of the crisis and especially in realistic fiction. Yeah, what is the kind of Western climate change novel? There's nonfiction. You know, there's I mean, the best writers on that have been Bill McKibben, I guess, and Nathaniel Rich. Emily Rabiteau came on and basically said that, you know, she felt that the time for fiction about climate change had passed and that it was the genre that was required was nonfiction, which I think is another way of saying what you're saying to Mima, that, you know, it can't be the future, it has to be the present. And I think like one of the other interesting undercurrents to what you're both saying, you know, John, I'm still thinking about that terrific metaphor of the leash that people carry around in their pockets to their job and like the power of that concretizing detail. Right. Um, and sometimes it's metaphorical and sometimes it's not. And when is metaphor clarifying and sharpening and when is it a way of distancing? Um, and there seems to be like a very fine line there because sometimes, um, you know, we had, um, the trans writer T. Fleischman on the show who said that, you know, some people think of a trans woman as a metaphor for a woman rather than an actual woman. And I'm still thinking about this. Um, you know, like in what ways do we use metaphor to, to shove people aside? The as if, right, you know, when the temperature rises two degrees, what that means is that the sea rises, right, among other things. And so someone's got to imagine themselves, you know, it's as if you were standing at the beach and you will, you will stand at the beach and the sea will rise. What do you, do you think that that Emily's right about, for example, like, you know, and what Whitney's saying, like that nonfiction has a different presence here because your, your, your piece to me sort of travels between genre, right? I think we should not absolve ourselves of the duty and responsibility of writing about the biggest thing that is going to happen to humanity in the history of our time on this planet. I don't think we can say, oh, that's for those writers and not for these writers. And if we don't have the words, then we have to find them or we have to write poorly until we figure it out. But I think that our words have to be committed to the major crisis that is upon us. And that is not to say that I am in any way anticipating or relishing the prospect of writing a climate change novel, which will probably be really boring and completely grim and have nothing interesting or, or delightful or joyful in it because it, you know, I don't know. I don't want to write that novel, but I also think it's my responsibility to, um, put those images into the minds of others in some form, in a consistent way. Uh, John, uh, the anthology gets at the relationship between economic inequality and climate change. Um, you know, I can think of a lot of examples, uh, John, you talk about in your introduction, uh, the fractionalization of the value of human life. Um, I can think of, of many examples of how aid is offered inequitably, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, or even now with COVID-19, in which has, has you know, unequally affected uh, black Americans. Could you talk about how responses from folk, people in the news or governments to these types of crises also splinter along racial or socioeconomic lines and how the anthology is engaging with that issue? Well, I wanted to make a book that looked at this issue prismatically with dispatches from as many points as possible that could be fit into one book. It's not representative because then I would have over 200 pieces and it would be, you know, it wouldn't be something this size, it would be a tome. Um, and I think one of the things we're running into here or just in general is just the the, inability of facts and figures to move us. Um, you know, a fact really only acquires, I think it's an active policies and power by when it's in a story. Um, and you have to somehow be enchanted into believing a fact to some degree. And sadly, this is one of the things um, the current carnival barker that's in charge of the United States understands to some degree because he is getting people to believe in non-facts by simply enchanting them with various very crude but effective performances. Uh, you know, when it comes to the ways that uh, our world, I think, adjudicates the value of what's happening to people that live on this planet, the, the eight or whatever billion people there are of us, too often it's been, are there any Americans affected? 
you know, um, if there's a plane crash, if there's a terrorist attack, if there's some natural disaster, and if not, then clearly, as Tamima's piece so brilliantly and, and, and brutally makes clear, uh, well, those people are a little bit more um, able to sustain pain. You know, and a, and a body is a body. We all have the same amount of nerve endings. And I think if we're going to deal with climate, the climate crisis in any real way, we have to um, remember that the fundamental unit of humanity is a body. Um, and, you know, if 20,000 bodies are lost in a flood, um, that is the same as 20,000 being lost in COVID-19 in a, a nation. So in order to do that, I feel like the only possible book that could be produced to reflect that and use that possibility of equality is an anthology. One that doesn't put a center anywhere. One that sort of keeps turning and through repetitions of inequalities, of jobs being lost as a result of climate change, people having to move as a result of climate change, uh, of people not being able to enter countries as a result of being having, having to move as a result of climate change. Only then can we begin to understand the way climate change as a, as a dynamic and, and the crisis as an event knits us together, uh, that there is no stepping out of this ecosystem. So one of the other threads that's sort of running under all of these answers is, I think, a question about the role of optimism. And I'm curious about how you think about the place of optimism in moving people to action and the role of optimism in your writing and thinking about this and, and what does give you optimism in terms of addressing these huge, huge questions, as you say to me about the, the most urgent questions, um, you know, the climate crisis and its connection to global inequality. I think we have the opportunity to completely break the world and put it back together in a better way because of COVID-19. You know, we have an opportunity to, I mean, just very simply in London, which is, you know, one of the worst epicenters of the of the disease, um, you know, they're just going to repaint all the roads and make them for pedestrians and cyclists. And maybe it will never go back to the way it was before. Maybe that the people that are on the roads riding their bikes right now, this is a very small fact, will always will sort of take over the roads, like literally take over the roads instead of being kind of, you know, like a, a tiny piece of the road that is mostly made for cars and, you know, trucks. So we, we're looking at a situation in which all of our fundamental, the things that we thought were completely, you know, unimaginable have happened overnight. Um, here's our chance to kind of start over, um, you know, repaint the roads. I was thinking about the, uh, do you remember the, the we are the world thing that happened? When was that? Was that in the 80s or was that the 90s? I can't remember. That it was like a raising money, right, for hunger. I think that was that what that was. But really what it was, that song wasn't really we are the world. The song was like, we are so rich and we're going <laughs> to have a concert and give a bunch of people who are poor and, and their lives are terrible. We're going to help them. The ethic of that song is very much the ethic of America for most of its history. And I think that part of what we're talking about now and part of what I think you are trying to, you're trying to get at, uh, to me in your essay, and we'll just maybe wrap up here, and, and John's doing with this anthology, is that that's not going to be an attitude that's going to work for us anymore because, you know, we blew it. Uh, and, and maybe that's okay. And maybe that blowing it is part of us rejoining the world in a more useful way. Yeah, I always think of the last scene in Black Panther when um, he gets up in front of the UN and he says, we're going to give you this gift. And some white diplomat is like, what could Wakanda possibly have to give to us? And I just, every person who comes from one of those countries that is imagined to be a country that is only a victim and has nothing to contribute, just felt this like swell of joy at that last scene. I don't know. I don't know if you did, Sugi, but yes, you know, I mean, like, yeah, that's me. Um, you know, don't ignore the rest of the world. 
Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we have to do here is dismantle the language of American exceptionalism. Um, you know, the day after Trump was elected, I, I think what I did was write to all the Sri Lankan left activists I knew and sort of be like, if you have any advice for me right now, <laughs> I'd really love to hear it. Um, How I to think, hate your leader. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, and so, but sort of their, the practice of daily resistance that they have cultivated, right? It's, it's so much based in those small actions. And, you know, you, John, you use the word local, which I feel like is becoming more and more important. You know, um, for our listeners, I just applied for my absentee ballot, and I hope that all of you do too. Um, that seems like local action number one. And, um, you know, and maybe an, another thing that I would encourage all of our listeners to do is to pick up this fantastic anthology, which I think is really important right now for us to think about how we can repaint those lines. Um, and John and Tamima, thank you so much for joining us. This is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to see all of you from a distance. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. Welcome and thanks to this summer's new intern, University of Minnesota junior Dylan Mietinen. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNFTalk, on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned today. Listen next time for a special interview with Curtis Sittenfeld about her new novel, Rodham. What would have happened if Hillary Clinton had not married Bill Clinton and remained instead Hillary Rodham? Our new episode will be out in two weeks. Mm-hmm.